If talking about new travel destinations or discovering the latest travel gadgets gets your heart racing just like mine, well then, you are in the right place. Hello there, I'm Katrina Rountree and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Come, our podcast about the wonders of travel, a place where we share memories from recent trips and we dream about upcoming adventures. So get your passports ready and join me for Journeys to Come. wonderful author of my new favourite book, The Midsummer Garden, Kirsty Manning. Now, I have to give credit to my brother for this interview and for this book coming into my life. I recently came in from a trip to Normandy and, and, and I was travelling throughout France. My brother can read me, dare I say it, like a book. I arrived home, I opened up the mail and there was this glorious novel and I completely devoured it. And I know that you will as well because it has all of our favourite things. It has travel, it has gardening, it has cooking, it has history, it will take you from the shores of Tasmania into Macedon Ranges, uh, into uh, France, Tuscany. It is just exquisite. And the most beautiful dollop of all is a wonderful romance that's thread throughout the book. So here we are today with Kirsty, How would you describe your book? It's about a story of two strong women. One, Artemisia, who is a medieval cook and a herbalist. She is confined to the walls of a chateau and she is tasked with preparing a wedding banquet. It's not her wedding banquet. She's tasked with preparing the wedding banquet for the lord of the manor. And, um, and the story details her life, really, in one day within the walls of the chateau, from getting up early to harvesting the... Um, herbs to cooking in the kitchen there's all the smells of the delivery and the spice to her relationships with the people within the chateau um, and the ones that she hopes to have later on outside the chateau there's a bit of a secret there and um, and then there's Pip uh, my contemporary heroine she is a marine biologist and she's really struggling to finish her PhD but she also has a wedding to plan to the lovely Jack who um, He's really putting down some real roots. It's, he's, he's going through succession planning. He, he's in a position where he wants to settle down, but she just wants to elbow out some room for herself, really, to, to finish her goals and to find ways that she can thrive. So I'm, I guess it's a story about a woman with quite literal walls around her and the contemporary woman and the walls that um, she puts up around herself, her family, expectations. Firstly, thank you for pronouncing Artemisia. Is that right? Yes, Artemisia. Couldn't quite get my head around that one, or my tongue around that one. Secondly, how on earth did you get the inspiration for this book? Well, this book started, uh, Artemisia character, came about because I was actually on holidays with my family in France. We took the kids out of school. We own um, a wine shop and we went on holidays. My husband was sourcing wine and we were staying right near Chalou and I went for a walk one day. We were walking through a field or a strew, as it would be called in medieval time, and I saw this quite workmanlike chateau just plonked in the middle of a paddock and there was wildflowers and hedgerow. And I, it had two turrets and a curved turret at the front and it was very workmanlike on a plane. And I, I went back and I did a tour and I, I walked up these old granite stairs, up this curving staircase and um, the stairs were worn and I was thinking, who has walked up these mm. stairs? And then I got to the top of the turret 
and there was a tiny room at the top of the turret that they called it a, a maiden's room. Yeah. And it had a small window, a small, small kind of thick, obviously there's very thick walls, very small window. And I looked out over the garden and it was a walled, the remnants of a walled medieval garden. And I just had an, I just had an image, a blinding image of a midsummer feast in the garden and I knew who was in the maiden's room and I had the event that happened in the maiden's room and I had I had my character and I had the end of my book. Boom. It was like boom. It was literally one of those wow. boom moments. And then the Pip character came about because my husband is Tasmanian and we quite often go to Tasmania and Tasmanians are a bit like modern Vikings really. They're always sailing and fishing and hunting and Obviously not pillaging anymore, but um, <laughs> but we go down to Stink Pot They're Bay. They're always yeah. hands in the soil and in the water, and we um, on holidays. So there's a scene where she it opens and she's down on the mud flats, and we we go down to the mud flats and we forage for those pippies. And there's a pasta dish that we've actually cooked from the pippies and herbs. And I just thought I want it needs to be. I've got this medieval cook and a herbalist, and she's into herb lore. I need a I need a contemporary woman who has quite literally her hands in the soil and I'm quite a water baby and I wanted her to be I thought if um it's it's a book about finding balance and finding your equilibrium in life and I thought the pristine Tasmanian foreshore was a very good place to start. My brother wanted me to ask you about the research required for the Midsummer Garden was it was it exhaustive? It was extraordinary I mean I just dived down into rabbit holes I um I got flat plans of medieval gardens, so I knew um, the berry walks and the herbs and the flowers that were growing, and I looked at tapestries, medieval tapestries, to see what flowers were growing in what combination. And because, of course, at that time, they often used flowers. They used sweet sauces and um, at the beginning of meals, and I got some medieval recipe books, so I would cook medieval dishes, so I'd cook of... Um, a bitter herb sauce or a sweet herb sauce and put you're it over a meat. Cook yes, I am. As well, aren't you? I am. And my kids thought it was very weird because mm -hmm. we'd have like, what sauce is this you're spooning up over dinner? Um, so I kind of got myself in the headspace of the medieval. And then we had to look at medieval um, wedding rituals and the rosemary and all the symbolism that you can't, it's not a history book, so you can't lecture people, but I just had to drop myself, deep dive mm -hmm. down so that. When I was moving through that world, um, I could really imagine the smells and the herbs and the flowers and the orchards that I would be walking through in the garden. And then when I came into the kitchen, or Artemisia came into the kitchen, you know, the kitchens were very small. They were at the back of the villa. They weren't, mm. the, um, they weren't the feature, of course, because the servants, were kept, um, the servants were kept at the back of the house or the chateau. And um, so they were hot and messy and very orderly and, you know, they would be physically strong because they're lifting pots and pulling, you know, whole carcasses of beasts and threading them onto roasts and they had to keep the fire going all the time so they had to have a system and they had, you know, people to make the sauces and Did you love herbs. that research? I loved it. I loved it. So. I love those tiny details where you were talking about the particular flowers that were required for good fortune and fertility uh, on, on one's wedding day. When you talk about dropping yourself deep down, a modern woman like yourself, how do you do that? How do you get into that zone? Well, when the kids are at school, obviously. I mean, we have, I, I 
have a garden at home and I'm very big in, into herbalism at home. So I have rosemary and lavender for devotion and rosemary for remembrance and sage. I love, um, I love the symbolism of that. But when I'm at home, when I decided I was tinkering writing a novel and then when I decided I was really going to do it, I had to carve it out like it was a job. So mm-hmm. I would go and do my bits and pieces in the morning and I would do any freelance articles I had and then I would just switch everything off and I would write pretty much for the day and I would research and I would do it chapter by chapter. Some people I know write madly to the end in one go, one draft. I, I write very – it takes me a while to find the right voice. It took me a while to um, find the right medieval voice for Artemisia because at first it was a little bit yoldy worldy and then I just realised I had to know the material and then I could make it natural and that's just writing enough until it finds until your natural voice and the natural voice of the story drops and once I found that um, I would go chapter by chapter and I would research a little bit but I wouldn't research too much as I went, but just enough to know the direction of the story because I didn't want the research to direct my plot. Uh-huh. It had to be a really tight one day in the medieval world of a wedding and yet get all the backstory of her love story, how she met mm. her man and um, how everyone came to the chateau. So. Did you travel when you were doing the research because your description of places like San Sebastian right through to, um, I know Mount Macedon is where your home is now, but it felt to me, it was so clear, um, the views that you were looking at, um, Tuscany as well. Did you do a lot of travel to research this book or was it your past travelling? Past travel. So um, so it was this book was compiled mostly of memories. And then I would ring up and ask people to clarify things. So um, obviously we go to Tasmania a lot. When we were engaged, my husband Alex went to work in a vineyard. He did vintage in Tuscany outside Luca at Tenuto de Valgiano, which um, Falgino is based on. And we did go hiking up in that chestnut grove. Was there a gorgeous girl that he was working with as well? I love the book. (laughs) No, there was not. Um, There was not. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so um, so we spent a lot of time there and um, eating in the tavernas. And then with the San Sebastian, uh, we I actually called up a chef, a, a chef that worked in one of the um, restaurants over there, one of the top restaurants. I was thinking about El Bulli. Is that yeah, but connected in some way? Yeah, right. Well, I wanted inspired. to be, yes, inspired by. I mean, that is the home of molecular gastronomy, as you know, and... Um, and so I wanted somebody who had worked in the kitchen. So I was very uh, careful to get that represented correctly because um, I guess there's so much emphasis on big food and grand food and how it's prepared. But also I had to be aware of the character because Pip, of course, is an environmentalist at heart. And so she she feels very connected to the earth. So though... Um, I guess the molecular gastronomy comes as a bit of a shock to her because she is a scientist and she is very concerned with wastage and mm. um, and other issues. So it's while it's a delight, Using um, she finds her... Yes, mm. exactly. She finds her path is a different way. So I guess it's that kind of contemporary coming of age. When I was reading food. it, <laughs> I was also curious about your own background because I, I know that you are now living... Uh, in Mount Macedon, yes. you're on a walnut property, is Chestnut, right? Chestnuts, yes. Chestnuts. But you only slightly refer to the to your background, to your childhood. I'm, 
I know that you grew up in the country, but I don't know where and how that influenced this book. And I'm I'm curious about your own story and, ah, and that well, hunger burning love that you married. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, so I grew up in Tamworth, and I guess there is a little bit of that in Pip. There's not. I mean, there's not a lot of. I mean, I think I'm both in Pip and Artemisia. Both. Mm. Um, I don't think that any character in the book is based on any one person, but there are certainly snippets borrowed. But I guess um, what I did have with um, growing up in the country was this yearning. You know, you grow up in the middle of New South Wales where it's five hours to a sports game sometimes. Mm. Mm. And um, I just had this yearning to see the world and I just devoured. I grew up, I was just a crazy reader. My world was my books. That's how I discovered the world. And um, I guess when I left, I went to university and I studied literature and I loved it. And, um, and then I worked in publishing for many years as a book publisher. And then I, I'd already met my husband-to-be at university, but we spent a lot of time travelling. And then we opened up, um, in conjunction with friends, the Prince Wine Store, and that has taken us around the world looking at different vineyards. So the a Prince lot of Wine the... Store, which is considered Australia's top wine store. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, he travels a lot for work, and I guess work just became our real passion. We would... Um, go with our children but always with a purpose um, we were tasting we were looking at the way grapes were grown and um, I guess and when we travel we love tasting the food all the different foods in the area and um, and so I guess this book is just an exploration of that kind of you know that coming of age I think it's a very Australian thing I notice that Australians often go offshore to define who they are and as I get older you know I've had this it's like you yearn to leave the country when you grow up in the country. And now, of course, as soon as I've had children, I've gone no, back to back the country. you're back on the farm. <laughs> it's but I wanted to ask you about that yeah. background because it also illustrates to anybody listening how everything happens for a reason and all of these paths will eventually come together. Yeah. And something that inspired me is uh, I'm sure a lot of people would look at your book and think, oh, my gosh, how on earth did you get that done? But you did an online writing course, is that right? I did. Um, I took myself because I knew that I wouldn't get to school if I had to do a physical course and so I found that very useful. Um, and you get a lot of feedback so you have to load up assignments every week. And because I travelled a bit for work so I was doing interviews a bit like you, not like you mm. but a little bit, and um, so I wouldn't necessarily get all my assignments in on time but I would get them in and I would just send in twice as much as I was supposed to and my tutor would um, send me back reams of feedback and in the end um, it, uh, the course I did was a Penguin Random House course in the UK because I had worked in publishing in Australia and I thought if it's so terrible I just don't want anyone in Australia giving yeah, don't me. Don't hold it against me. Yeah, don't, I don't want them to know that I was writing a novel but um, she just said you must have faith in it, this book will be published and in the end you've got... Um, an opportunity to send in 3,000 words to an editor, just an anonymous editor mm -hmm. at the UK, um, at Penguin, and they got back and said um, they had no doubt that this book would be edited and published if I got to the end of a novel. So it was after now. that three months that I just sat down and I gave, I um, then employed a mentor that I, because being a journalist, I needed a deadline and some dates to write to because, I mean, it's one thing to say that you're going to write a book, but it really is quite gruelling. It is gruelling, not in the sense of physically gruelling, but you really have to 
it just doesn't flow from your fingers every day. You mm. have to think about each chapter, the characters, the plot. You have to chop and change and you have to rework it. And um, for me, a lot of the times the magic comes in the rewriting. And um, so I have to know my research. I have to have all the scaffolding there and then I just fly. And I have to give myself time and space to do that. You're a mother of three. Yes. You have this family business. Um, you're, you live on this beautiful property. I think that a lot of people, certainly budding writers, would, would wonder, how on earth do you get it done? I squeeze it around the edges of my day. I become, um, we were joking the other day with my husband actually, he was saying um, there are 45 people in our marriage because I'm always, uh, and my kids will say in the car, I'm always talking to myself, my husband will hear me in the shower having a conversation with myself. It is always, it must be dreadful married to a novelist because you um, turn into this quite crazy person who's having conversations with people who don't exist all the time. But I am very good at, uh, it's quite obsessive. My, my children play a lot of sport. So I spend a lot of time beside pools and beside basketball stadiums. And you if maximise you maximise that time. I sit there, my, I give my daughter or my son a kiss and I will sit there for two hours on a Sunday while everyone is at training. I will go for a walk for half an hour and then I will sit down and I will do a, an hour and a half of writing. I will give wow. myself a word limit. Um, when I was first writing this, obviously I had a um, day job, freelance journalism job, and was doing bits and pieces to help out here. And um, so I would do it at night. But I find now that I get a bit tired at night and there's a lot of other media requirements mm. that you have to do at night. So I kind of find that I put that, that's the work I do now at night. But um, I just had to, for me, to get it done, I had to treat it like a job. So when the kids went to school, I worked. And I would carve out a couple of hours on weekends. When the kids are at sport, I work. If I don't go for a walk or go for a swim, then I work. I am taking notes. Um, I'm very, I've become a little, I guess, antisocial in the sense that I don't catch up for lunches and coffees, or if I do, it has to be before 10 and then I go home. As you're talking, I'm wondering, what do the other school mums think of you? She's a snob. <laughs> oh, she snobbed me off. She's sitting in her car. I know. On the computer. I drive up to the school gate and nudge Charlie out of the car and keep going, quick, out you get. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Got things I to know. do. It's just, but it's like anything. I think, um, I think it, it was really challenging for me to write a book and I, 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 I would hate for somebody to think that it just poured from my fingertips because it was just, if you imagine the work that it took to write a novel and then multiply it by 10, that's what it took for me to get the novel out and takes for me to get the novel out. How does it feel now to have the book in front of you and it doing so well? It is quite extraordinary. I have been overwhelmed by the response to this book because when I first wrote it, I thought nobody's going to be interested mm. in medieval herb law. Who is going to love a marine biologist who is elbow deep in mud flats, like it's just not sexy. But I have had people write to me and tell me how it has held them captivated. I've yes. had a lady who has come to a book event and she must have been in her mid to late 70s and she had bought me a posy of flowers and herbs from her garden with Artemisia and she wanted to bring it and give it to me to say how much she loved the book. And um, it has really... Uh, touched some people and it is quite extraordinary because the book 
becomes the readers. They take what it, from it what they need from it. And some people really love the herbs and the healing. Some people really I love, the love some people okay, love the, the gardens. Well. Some people love the food. Some people love the contemporary woman striving for a place to thrive. Um, you know, and I think that is the the quirkiness of a novel that it it enters the world and it really. Um, and I I found that very moving. It's I must ask for those who. Um, I follow me on social media, many referred to the beautiful cover. Um, how important is a beautiful cover or, or how did you end up with this particular cover? Well, a beautiful cover is everything. I mean, the publishers, the cover does a bit of a different job to the text because the cover is really, aside from word of mouth, but for a debut author you really don't have word of mouth from the outset, mm. you know, on day one. You've only got the cover on the shelf. So... Um, so I spoke to my beautiful publishers at Alan and Unwin and I used words like warmth and whimsy and magic and I wanted some herbalism on it. Um, they were very keen on having a person. They wanted to personify the story. Yes, I like that um, too. And, but I asked them to make it, if they did that, could they not make it so in your face, could they make it quite painterly? And mm -hmm. I think they've really nailed that. It's really beautiful and warm and charming and it feels tactile that was another word I used and um, the gold leaf on it is just extraordinary that's just a magic touch by the designer um, Nada and that's the Artemisia which just feels so special because it's all about Artemisia the mother, mother of herbs and to have that represented on the cover in a really subtle beautiful way is magic so now Kirsty what brings us here today and what all of us listening now are interested in is a shared love of travel. And it's so clear in this book that you have a passion for travel. So can you explain a little bit about that? And, and of course, what are your favourite places? Where are your favourite places? Oh, so many, <laughs> so big, many. Big question. Um, I think, uh, well, I would start with Tasmania, where the book opens. And I think I would recommend anyone, if you have not been to Tasmania, please go. And, um, and obviously Hobart is magnificent. There's Mona and there's a great wine bar in Tasmania called Etty's. Thank you. Take notes. Etty's. Yep. You don't need to go to Tuscany. You can go to Hobart. Mm -hmm. If you could get on a boat, hire a charter boat for a day or um, even just drive down the foreshore of the Doncaster Channel. I think it, it, there are so many coves with these mud flats that I talk about and the... I guess the sandstone cliffs that look like cake mix, they're all swirled and um, you can smell the eucalyptus, there's the birds and you can fish. If you get a fishing licence, you can crayfish. Um, all the way sort of between Margate down to Bruny Island. And if you can get on a boat, I would say the best way to see Tasmania is offshore. And, um, and then you can swim. Like we'll often get just in the dinghy and we'll go, we'll catch a... We'll go on the boat across to um, Bruny Island and we'll light a fire and do some fishing and we'll chisel off some oysters and some mussels and we'll cook something and then we'll come back. I mean, it's just really it's very simple, Tasmania. Mount Macedon, where's your favourite place there? Where am I eating? Where am I staying? <laughs> where are you staying? Uh, well, there's a lot of lovely B&Bs, I would say, a lot of private B&Bs mm -hmm. in Mount Macedon. I would eat at Colenso. That's the most interesting food, I would say, in Woodend. Mm-hmm. Writing this down. Now, I also wanted to ask, um, you have a passion for Paris. 
I do. Because you're, you're only human. <laughs> you have a favourite bookstore I read somewhere. I do. It, I, I think it may be just, if it hasn't closed, it might just be about to close, but it's called um, La Maison Rostique. And it was in Rue Jacob in um, St Germain. And um, just along from uh, La Jure. Oh, lovely. <laughs> and I got that one. Yes. Yes. And, um, and it is a bookshop full of gardening books. It is oh, botanical manuscripts, gardening books. It is the bookshop to lose yourself for in mm -hmm. a day. And my other favourite street in Paris is called Rue de Matisse, mm -hmm. which is in the 9th arrondissement. Thank you. Up near um, Montmartre. And this is... This is the foodie street in Paris. Mm -hmm. So it has your fromagerie, it's got the poissonnerie, the fish shop. It has it has a flower shop called Happy. Is there a better named flower <laughs> shop in the world? Um, and I feature that I feature this street. Pip walks down this street in Paris, and um, I make sure I stay there. Um, I think there's a hotel around the corner called um, Hotel Avoir, and she eats at this Corsican wine bar called. Um, Terra Course, and that it has a red awning out the front, and um, and that is a great place to go for a glass of rosé on a warm day. Before I hit you with some quick questions, I would like to ask, we've been chatting about this beautiful novel. You've obviously found your feet with the writing, hopefully I can say that. I do need to ask for, for those that are now addicted to your stories, what's next? If you love food and gardens mm. and travel. This is me. It will be um, the book for you. Will there be romance? With romance. Oh, thank God. There, is, there is quite a bit of romance in this book. Oh. There, is, um, there is a war. It's set in a different continent. It's set in Asia. And, um, and it takes us to uh, London and Melbourne as well. And, um, and it is set in two different eras. And it's a, a story about luck and identity and perseverance and loyalty. I think with travel, we're constantly, um, just like Pip in the book, she's comparing herself to everyone in her family and there's this constant push-pull, your familial relationships are some of your most formative in your life. And I find travel for me is very formative too. It's, it's how you identi identify yourself. And I've never felt more Australian as, as now, getting older, and I think, um, and I think this is a story about migration and travel and, and how people identify themselves. So it's, it addresses some really big issues. While you're listening, why not add some travel to your inbox? Sign up for my weekly travel updates at journeystocome.com. I don't, I don't start out intending to write about food and gardens, but I think food and gardens in different cultures tell you a lot about the way that people live in that place and their response to it and how they've adapted to that environment and how they shape that environment. It tells you a lot about, um, it's my way into society, if you like. So there's a lot of that in this book as well. Well, I suppose for those that follow Journeys to Come, that is our interest as well. So we look forward to that book. And if I could just hit you with some quick questions. Yes. To wrap things up. Now you mentioned once uh, before, but I'll ask you again. Your favourite bookshop? La Maison Rustique in Paris. Do you have a favourite restaurant? <laughs> Belotta. <Hey>! South Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favourite market? Ooh, 
um, food market. I love the Saint Germain markets in Paris. Um, I give me a Bangkok wet market any day of the week. And I also, for just the sheer extravagance and quirkiness, love the Klingon Court markets in northern Paris. Favourite garden? Ooh, mine. Favourite wine? I, champagne. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say a Clouet or a Pierre Peters champagne. Mm -hmm. From the expert. And one last question. What is the one travel item you always throw into your bag you can't live without? Well, a book that I pick up at the airport. I, I always load up, do you know, I always load up on my um, phone a million talking books and then I get to the airport bookshop and it is ridiculous. My family will laugh because I'm the person trying to shove 10 books into my overhead luggage. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> laugh because I do exactly the same thing and, and I know that for those listening, they're probably nodding as we're going, yep, I do the same. So, Kirsty Manning, we are very proud of you and the Midsummer Garden. Thank you for sharing your story and Artemisia's story and Pip's story and well done and we look forward to the next novel. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Journeys to Come. If you want any more information on the places that we visited, all the people we spoke to, then visit our website, journeystocome.com, for full details.